With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to episode 210 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor. And as always, I am joined by the one, the only, the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. What's happening, Dan? There's a lot of TV, and that's pretty much all that's happening. Well, I mean, as the listeners know, there's also baseball season and, and whatnot. But uh, but for and for the most playoff part, playoff basketball and playoff hockey, and it's fine. So there's other well, but those you know where I watch those things, Leslie. I watch those things on my TV, but also uh, definitely want to uh, wish our Earthling listeners a happy Earth Day. Um, so so yes, and of course, happy 422. Those who observe, even if it's a little bit afterwards. Fair, fair. Well, let's get right into things. As usual, we lead off with the week's top headlines. Number one. Up first, Stranger Things creators, the Duffer Brothers, will executive produce The Burrows, or Burrows, uh, a supernatural drama series that is from the creators of Netflix's very good and sadly prematurely canceled The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Do we know what it's about? It, it the little the little summary I saw made it seem a little bit like uh, either Cocoon or Batteries Not Included. It's really just sounds like Stranger Things, but with older people. Well, like but not I mean, kids. What is what is Cocoon or uh, or Batteries Not Included? If not Stranger yeah, Things same. with the old people, so. Elsewhere, over at Paramount Plus, the long gestating Star Trek Discovery spinoff Section 31 is moving forward, but the Michelle Yeoh-led project will no longer be a series, but rather a made-for-streaming movie. As sources say, this is the beginning of Phase 2 of Alex Kurtzman's Star Trek franchise on Paramount Plus. In renewals, ABC has picked up one of my favorite broadcast dramas of the year, I guess. I mean... It's not a particularly deep list, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, ABC has picked up Will Trent for a, a second season and The Rookie for a sixth season, which presumably means he is no longer a rookie. <laughs> yeah, ABC is catching up to a lot of the other broadcast networks that have uh, many of which, at least the other big three, have, have already mapped out a large chunk of their scripted schedules for next season well before the May 1st D-Day deadline for the WGA. So lots of stuff coming up. Obviously, that's going to have an impact on upfronts, which we'll get into in a future episode. <laughs> Elsewhere, I, I, over I like at that, we Apple, keep that we keep threatening we're eventually going to get to pilot season and uh, nah, upfronts I and mean, all of that. But. It's just going to be all wrapped into upfronts because, like, I don't really think people like pilot season is so far from what it was when when during it's like like the the years of of getting 90 to 100 pilots picked up across all five broadcast networks is long gone and it's been that way for some time and it's what we're seeing now is obviously we've talked on the show before about 
the switch to year-round development by the broadcast networks and COVID and the pandemic really prompted everyone to lean harder into that, to order less and to be more financially responsible, dare I say, in terms of ordering things that you know you're actually going to make if you actually want to make it into a series. Like you don't need to order 15 comedy pilots and 15 drama pilots anymore. Order what you need, take the time and make them good and then put them on the air and then market them. It's that simple. I mean, not to undercut what everyone in this industry is paid significantly more than I make, you know, and what they do, but that's really what it is. It's just keep it simple. It's very, very funny. I mean, you don't need me to remind you of this and the listeners don't need to be reminded either. But, uh, you know, I remember when I was less critical, less on the critic track and more on the reporter track and the way that spring basically from you know, from January to April was 100% seven to 10 stories a day on person X cast in this or, or all of the various different buzz stories that you and our, our corporate sibling, Nelly Andreva, et cetera, used to do. What's the, what's the buzz? What's the heat? What's got the heat and all of that. And, and that was this whole conversation that kept, well, not just our industry, but the entertainment industry alive for springs every single year. And it's just not a, it's just not a thing at all anymore. It's just amazing to me, honestly. <laughs> yeah, there were days I remember writing, I counted a couple of times in, in the thick of old pilot seasons where I would write 17 stories in a day on average for weeks on end because there were that many castings. And you got to remember for each official story that you get to write with a casting, you've sent five, eight other emails tracking other names that you've heard in the mix for for specific shows. Sometimes you're getting the same name. Obviously, that's where those the heat lists come of which actors are always in high demand. And it's like you're emailing that name for like eight or 12 of or, you know, different pilots. And now it's like you're lucky if there are eight or 12 different pilots combined total this season. You know, it's just like the CW didn't order a single one, which obviously it's not the CW that we've come to know. This is the next star CW. So Fox is really just doing year round. They're doing animation and they've got a couple script to series. That's their model, obviously kind of taken from the streaming and cable way of developing things. But look, we're turning headlines into a mini pilot season segment, Dan. See what you did? <laughs> it's good because we've been promising people it was going to happen. And now we've fulfilled our promises. And really and truly, that is all that this podcast lives for is to uh, make promises and fulfill them. We are that kind of uh, consumer service organization. <laughs> okay, Dan. So I'm going to give you a trivia question here. Uh-oh. Okay, but it's going to require you to not look at the script that I've prepped <laughs> with headlines. Okay? I don't know. Have you already read ahead? I've, I've, I've looked you away. Don't, you don't look. You don't, okay. So Apple this week canceled Dear Edward, the Jason Kadams drama, after one season. The tearjerker is now one of three scripted originals, live-action scripted originals, to be one and done at Apple. Can you name the other two? No. Definitely leave in the dead air here, uh, producer Matt, um, as I ponder. Uh, and you can also uh, insert We can a come back act. to this at the end of the show. No, 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 because uh, eventually I'm going to look back at my script. Uh, <laughs> seems inevitable. Um, okay, one is definitely Little Voice, because we did... Yeah, a, that was the first one. We did an yeah. interview 
we had Sarah Bareilles on the podcast. That was fun. Uh, that really was fun. You, um, you were very excited about that. I was um, very excited. Yeah, Sarah Bareilles and her producing partner, Jesse Nelson, yes. of both of, obviously, Waitress from Broadway. That was episode 77 from July 10th, 2020. It was, it was early. It was fairly early in the pandemic. Um, yeah, that's okay. when I was still writing that we were recording remote next on, on in my Google Doc. As opposed to it just being default. Um okay, I, I'm not sure I can come up with what the what the second one is. So so spill for the kids at home. Shantarum. Huh. Okay. I hadn't a, a I hadn't realized that that was uh formally cancelled, ended whatever. B, I'm not surprised. It probably yeah. should have just been a I mean it wasn't awful. I didn't I didn't dislike it at times uh but on I the other little voice was great for the record oh people still talk about little voice as being a show great they like soundtrack. apparently yeah, we listen to it all the time apparently not Gonna enough people <laughs> wife really really loves sarah Burrell's. i feel like i feel like britney o'grady has had like 17 different yeah. uh, tv shows since then which you know yeah big breakout that was that show was a breakout for her they had you know and they were the first one to, to really give her the shot i mean i guess well wait that's not true wasn't she on was she on Star or Empire? She was on uh, Star. And Star. then subsequently she's been, she was part of the ensemble on the first season of White Lotus. And then she was uh, kind of the star of The Consultant. Uh, if you don't think Christoph Waltz was the star of The Consultant. Uh, huh. Okay. So Little Voice, Shantaram, and uh, Dear Edward. Um yeah, I mean, it's not a, not a bad track record if if those are the only things. Uh, well, where where are things with Shining Girls? Because that could be another one. Shining Girls is another one where it was on the set. bubble. Okay. No official word. It, well, it's been on the bubble for a long time. At a certain, at a certain, I mean, look how long it was before Little Voice got got canceled. At a certain point, the bubble uh, kind of calcifies. But um, and that was another like basically the problem with both Shantaram and uh, and Shining Girls at least were that they were probably stories that were better suited for simply being limited series to begin with. And so, oh well. yeah. I mean, I I actually watched all of Dear Edward. I know you you weren't I, a huge fan I wasn't of it, a huge but, fan, but I didn't watch all of it. I mean, I watched all of it, so I I really liked it. But then again, you know, I felt like this was a return to form for Jason Kadams, who's probably my favorite drama showrunner, um, just because Friday Night Lights and Parenthood are both I would say top five shows for me all time. But and you know, I was we, bummed. I would I would have watched season two. I probably would have i still probably would have preferred a second season of as we see it if we're talking about uh yeah oh yeah canceled too soon jason kadem's shows recently yeah. so he, he would have too that show was deeply personal to for him so yeah. <sighs> yeah that was a bummer and last but not least this is a a minor eyebrow raiser but also minor serves as it this could serves, have been its own topic dan it totally could have but it does serve as a reminder that in hollywood uh Nobody's career is truly over, and not just nobody's career is truly over, but you can definitely go home again. Uh, two and a Half Men, creator, showrunner, etc., and former TV's Top 5 guest Chuck Lorre is reuniting with not former TV's Top 5 guest uh, and the strange star Charlie Sheen on Lorre's upcoming HBO Max or Max comedy, How to Be a Bookie. <laughs> you might remember if you pay an iota of attention to television, that Sheen was, of course, fired from Two and a Half Men after disparaging Lori and, well, all sorts of other stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. so congratulations, I guess, to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> He's now going to have a recurring role on how to be a bookie. So, uh, hashtag winning? Yes, that was a thing that we definitely did for a while. 
And I'm sure there are still people out there who are hashtagging winning on Twitter all the time. And I suspect that those are people who, as a rule, I, I don't want to necessarily communicate with. Up second. Number two. Up second this week, Fox and Dominion voting systems have settled their defamation case with Rupert Murdoch's company paying out $787 million to end what would have been the televised trial of the century. Joining us to break down what it all means is THR media and business writer Alex Weprin. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Thanks for having me. So when the news of the settlement broke, Certainly my Twitter feed, there was <laughs> there was a lot of, oh, darn, oh, crap, because everyone just basically wanted this to be as public and ugly as humanly possible. But from your perspective, from actually reporting on it, how likely did it seem to you that we were actually going to get the trial of the century out of this? You know, up until a couple days before what ended up being the settlement day, uh, I, I thought there would be a settlement. And then right before, I was like, you know what? I think I might actually go to trial. And then, of course, I was as surprised as anybody when there ended up actually being a settlement. Um, You know, I I think after a lot of the internal emails and texts came out, I think a lot of people were like, okay, it's going to go to trial. Because, like, a lot of the most embarrassing stuff already came out. Now, of course, in a trial, you'd have people giving testimony in court. And that has the potential to, you know, go haywire in a lot of different ways. So I do think Fox wanted to avoid that, especially having people like, Rupert Murdoch, you know, 92 years old, testifying in court, Tucker Carlson testifying in court. I think they wanted to avoid that. Uh, but I was actually, uh, you know, a, a month ago, I would have said, oh, they're going to settle. A week ago, I would have said, oh, they're going to go to trial. And then I was surprised when uh, when they ended up settling. Uh, although in hindsight, you know, it does make sense. Right before a trial begins often when these settlements take place. Well, you talked about the the reasons why Fox wouldn't have wanted this to go to trial and the people who they wouldn't necessarily have wanted to have on the stand on the record speaking to America. But what benefited Dominion from your perspective? Why would they have felt like they wanted to settle? Uh, The money. I mean, I think Dominion wanted the money. Like, honestly, um, I think that they had reached a number where they were happy. I think they probably would have liked an apology, but clearly an apology, an on-air apology was not necessary because they're not getting one. Fox released a statement that was basically like, we acknowledge that the judge said we you know, didn't air, aired stuff that was not true, which is not really an apology. Um, and I think in the case of Fox, Fox, you know, they wanted to avoid having those embarrassing um, public testimonies from their, their hosts because they want to keep their audience. They, they don't want their audience to, to hear Tucker Carlson saying stuff that contradicts what he said on TV or that could anger Donald Trump. Um, and so I think, you know, ultimately their interests ended up aligning. I don't think a lot of people got exactly what they wanted, but, you know, it got to the point where both Dominion and Fox were in agreement. What have the conversations been like around that very, very, very brief and wildly vague statement that Fox made versus what a more concrete apology or explanation yeah. would have been? Yeah, I mean, if, if you read the statement, you know, it, it's a very basic, bare-bones statement, and it ends by saying we, we just, you know, want to move forward so that we'll be, hopefully this divisive time will be over. Um, you know, I think a lot of people were uh, expecting or hoping something that was more forthcoming, you know, acknowledging, a- acknowledging that there were lies, you know, from their hosts. 
Um, you know, I, I, I was a little surprised there wasn't something a little bit more blunt, even in the form of like a written statement. Uh, I wasn't shocked that there wouldn't be an honor apology, but, uh, but I was surprised there wasn't maybe a slightly stronger written statement. Uh, but of course, Fox now has other lawsuits to deal with, including one from another voting company called Smartmatic. And now they appear ready to defend against that one as well. So they're not, you know, they're not giving any indication they plan to settle. Although, of course, who knows? You know, maybe the day uh, that trial is supposed to start, they'll settle that one too. How are those other cases different? I guess is there like why would there be a reason to think that they might have a different result, or just everyone might have a different answer for what a settlement is? So it's good to them. You know what you have to think about is you know the judge is going to decide certain things, what evidence is admissible, what evidence is not admissible. In this case, the judge decided that Fox lied. He decided from the bench, like, okay, there's enough evidence to say that these were not true. And so the jury, their only job was to decide, was there malice behind the statements? And then if there was, what the penalty should be, what the payment should be. Um, you could end up with another courtroom where a judge does not come to that conclusion and Fox feels like they might be able to make a stronger case in front of a jury. You know, it also depends on what evidence is, is permissible. So, you know, there is some incentive to kind of move through the process a little bit, see how things progress, and then if things don't go your way, as they did in this case, then maybe you try to say, okay, well, we should really try and settle this. Where are those cases, um, just in terms of timetable? Uh, they're farther out. Uh, Smartmatic, I think, is going to start next year, um, maybe later this year. So, you know, there's a ways to go. This will be playing out for years in the same way that the phone hack hacking scandal that the Murdochs were involved in played out for years. Do you have any sense yet of whether there has been any kind of impact on Fox, all of this, or has it really just been an opportunity for, for people who already spent their time mocking the credibility of, of Fox news to be like, see, I told you so. I have not seen any indication that this has negatively impacted Fox's business. Their ratings have not fallen. They've been steady or up. Um, I interviewed the head of ad sales at, at Fox maybe a month ago, and he said he told me on the record they had not lost a single advertiser. Um, you know, uh, so I mean that's the honest truth. They're going to have to pay 787 million. Maybe some of that will be covered by insurance. They'll be able to deduct it for tax purposes because it's a business expense. Um, but honestly, uh, I have not seen any indication that it's negatively impacted Fox's business. And I think they want to do everything they can to try and keep their audience watching uh, their channel. <sighs> That's fucking wild. I'm sorry. I was trying to not say anything during this segment, but that is mind boggling to me that, the, you know, it's like you're paying you know, a quarter of a billion dollars because you three quarters, three quarters, three quarters of a billion, quarters of a billion dollars. dollars because you lied. <laughs> sorry, I was told there'd be no math because you lied to your viewers and no, no problem. No impact. All good. We're all good here. Like, well, one uh, thing I've seen people speculating again on Twitter, because everyone likes to speculate and that's what they do is that the settlement while a large settlement Basically, Fox could just ask for higher carriage fees with cable deals and and just, I don't want to say get the money back magically and immediately, but get the money back. Is that a practical way for them to be recouping? Or at the end of the day, does Fox really not care that much about three quarters of a billion dollars? It's a tax write-off. It is a tax write-off. I think Fox views all these settlements, and it's not just you know the Dominion settlement. It's They settled with a Venezuelan businessman last week 
Remember, they settled with the family of Seth Rich uh, last a couple years ago. I think they view these as the cost of business. I think it's part, you know, it's the cost of business for them. Um, they are a be- beginning a new round of carriage negotiations, and they are, I understand it, asking for much higher fees. Um, whether that's successful, you know, we'll see. Um, you know, the people that watch cable TV tend to be older, um, you know, more friendly to cable news. So I wouldn't be surprised if cable providers end up paying it because, you know, that's who's paying for cable TV still. Um, but we'll, we'll have to see how it progresses. I will say I wrote a story a couple months ago noting that last quarter for the first time in at least five years, um, Fox's cable revenue declined on a year-over-year basis. And that's because basically you know, the cord cutting was so bad that it offset whatever gains they had in carriage fees. Um, and that's kind of a small thing, but it, it's kind of a, it tells you that things were trending in the wrong direction. And I think they're going to try and push for much higher fees to try and prevent that, you know, pre- prevent it from declining in the, at least the next couple of years. And is there any evidence yet on how the OANs and Newsmaxes and whatever of the world, how they've been able to capitalize or take advantage of this to any degree? You know, if you read the the text messages and emails um, from the Fox executives that were released as part of the Dominion trial, they were freaked out by OAN and Newsmax because right after the election, like they were going all in on this stuff, and they ended up issuing public apologies um, and settling their their own cases. Um, lately, I haven't seen much. OAN has kind of fallen off the face of the earth. They lost their only big cable, you know, carriage provider in Directv. Uh, Newsmax has seen. You know, some growth, um, uh, they've actually stabilized at a place that was a little higher than I thought. But, you know, they're still not even close to Fox. You know, they're not in the same league. Um, And so, you know, they've kind of settled up as kind of like little niche players. Excellent. Well, readers can read all of Alex's spectacular coverage of really the entire TV business game over at THR. And we thank you so much for joining us and and clarifying, albeit in some strange and sad ways, this very interesting and big story. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for having me. Number three. Up third. One week after Warner Brothers Discovery officially confirmed uh, Leslie's long-standing exclusive on a Harry Potter live-action TV series, and you can go back to last week's podcast and listen to our various thoughts on the ins and outs of that Harry Potter TV series, because if memory serves, we had a lot, yeah. uh, there is another multi-billion with a B, not to be confused with various billions uh, spinoffs, trillions, zillions, and thousands. There is another multi-billion dollar franchise that's getting a similar treatment and got a similar Leslie Goldberg exclusive treatment. Leslie, what did you report this week? Twilight. Okay, break out the sparkles, Dan. Twilight is being developed as a scripted live action TV show. Who's going to play Bella? Who's going to play Edward? Where you been, Bella? I don't know. I don't, I'm not down with the kids. I just saw that on Twitter a lot. But yeah, Lionsgate TV, which owns the rights to Twilight, Stephanie Meyer's best-selling book series, is in early development for a live-action scripted TV show based on author Stephanie Meyer's series of books. 
Sinead Daly, whose credits include Tell Me Lies, The Walking Dead World Beyond, Raised by Wolves, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and The Get Down is attached to write the script for Twilight. Sources say Daly is working with Lionsgate TV to determine what the specific take on Twilight is going to be. We don't know if this is going to be a, a quote-unquote faithful adaptation as Max is promising with Harry Potter or if this will kind of fill in some of the blanks or be an offshoot, anything. Anyway, we have no idea what the, t the take is, but author Stephanie Meyer is expected to also be involved alongside the franchise's film producer, Wick Godfrey, and former Lionsgate Motion Picture Group co-president Eric Feig, who during his tenure at Summit Entertainment famously bought the rights to the book series after Paramount and MTV passed. Can you imagine if they had actually made that? Twilight would be on Paramount? Pretty crazy. Anyway, but uh, yeah, this is, um, we've talked about reboots, well, for 210 episodes, it feels like, but this is a big one. Anytime that you've got a multi-billion dollar franchise and the rights are sitting right there and it's dormant, there's just not too many of those that are not that are going to be dormant for long. So, Dan, I think one of the things that's interesting about this is the timing, because, well, while I know that this has been kind of in the works quietly for a while, I just found out about it this week, which is why I, I broke it. But this is the it, the order for this. And then and there's again, this is early development. It's not a show. It's not a series order yet. There's still a lot of things that have to be done. There's no platform attached. Lionsgate is going to figure out what this is, package it all up, and then take it out and shop it to potential streamers and who and whomever else might kick the tires. But the timing of this is interesting to me because right now, as we record this, it's April 20th, and the strike D-Day is May 1st. And one of the things that I can tell you about the industry is no one's really buying anything. Like we're announcing these like series orders. You can go back to headlines and talk about it. But like some of this, like even the Duffer Brothers project was announced on their development slate from like a year ago. So that's been in the works for a long time. And same with, you know, Section 31, right? So what these studios are actually putting their effort toward right now is anything that can be a franchise, anything based in IP, because it's a safe bet. You know what, what you're going to get. And the the chance for an upside is, is vast versus an original, which takes a lot more nuance and a lot more care because there's it's just it's harder to get any original concept through right now, especially with the timing of the strike. So, you know, Dan, how do you feel about Twilight? Were you are, are you team Bella or are you team Jacob? Okay. All <laughs> okay. oh, right, no, it's not Team Bella or Jacob. It's Team yes, it's Edward or Jacob. <laughs> you know what? In my book, it's just Team Bella because, girl, you gay. <laughs> and also, ultimately, uh, it became so clear that it that that nobody was supposed to be Team Jacob uh, because Jacob fell in love with the baby. Uh, that it it wasn't going to it it didn't matter. By the end, everybody was either Team Edward or Team Unseen Third Person. Uh, look. I <laughs> I can't remember what movie I signed off. I stopped going. I stopped watching because I know I stopped reading the books when they shifted the focus of the narrator. And I remember going to see one of the the Twilight movies on opening weekend with my best friend. We went to a matinee and we just laughed so hard that it annoyed all the tweens that were sitting behind us. And they threw popcorn at us. But 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I saw, I did see all the movies. I helped. I read all the books. I'm not, uh, or I read all of the books that were in the the linear series. I didn't read whatever the the rewritten book thing was that she did a few years ago. And you know, honestly, one of my favorite Comic Con memories ever was the first Comic Con panel in Hall H for for Twilight, um, just because. I don't know, like the fans obviously knew if the people who the people who were passionately invested even before a frame of footage had been shot knew what it was. But I still think there were a lot of people in that room who were in the room, probably for other things later in the day, who were simply unprepared for how loud and passionate the reaction was to that franchise. And, you know, I was in Hall H's for a lot of big panels that were, that were kind of brand defining. The, the Iron Man panel is always going to be a quintessential example of a panel where you, you sat there in that room when no one had any sense of, of what Marvel's, this Marvel cinematic universe could possibly be. And you came away from that panel thinking, okay, now I understand or something like uh, 300 where you watched the trailer and you went, OK, that's going to be a thing. Uh, but with with Twilight, it was absolutely like that. It was it was it was shocking to be there and present for it. I don't know that you can do it in the same way for for television. I, I really don't, because it's not really the same thing as the Harry Potter franchise, where there was so much that was left on the cutting room floor and you could simply just go forever with the stuff that was on the cutting room floor. These books are not, these books have mythology clearly, but they're not to the same degree. And also when you think of the kind of show it is, there isn't an obvious version of what the television version of Harry Potter already was. I mean, the magicians wasn't really it. It was not really that. Whereas tonally speaking, if you did a TV show of Twilight, it would be a lot like Vampire Diaries. And there's no, that's not an insult in any way. It's just saying there have been really good shows that were like that. I, you know, I will always stand behind the first handful of seasons of Vampire Diaries as great TV. And so I think it would be very hard for a Twilight adaptation for TV to be better than the first two or three seasons of Vampire Diaries. But I could be wrong. Uh, so, and then you see how quickly Vampire Academy was was canceled as an as an example of. So, okay, maybe there is not necessarily an audience that is instantly champing at the bit for anything <laughs> vampire related. On the other hand, Twilight is in a it's in a different league. It's not really <laughs> it's not comparable to Vampire Academy or anything. So, it would be what it was. Uh, but I'm I'm curious. I'm curious about this as a, as a as a method, as a methodology of storytelling. It's the okay. Well, we already made these things into movies, but now we're going to make them into into seventy hour movies and see if we can you know skin the buffalo in a different way. And uh, we'll, <laughs> also, we'll see how many of these things actually get made. So. <laughs> fair, very but, fair. But I'm yeah. but I'm cur I'm curious and and. But I'm not going to reread the books. <laughs> no, no, no. 
Speaking of reboots, news broke this week that Paramount Plus is developing a Galaxy Quest TV series with original producer Mark Johnson, who is currently overseeing AMC's Anne Rice franchise, attached to executive produce. This is the third time that Paramount Television Studios has attempted to revive the beloved and cult favorite movie. Two previous efforts to get it off the ground at Amazon didn't go beyond the script stage. But again, here we are, reboots, beloved properties. Just, it's like going, you know, milking the cow. What else can we get from this? We have, we have the rights to this. What, what else can we do, do for this? I've never understood why it was hard to get a Galaxy Quest series going. I, I really haven't. Uh, you know, obviously it would have to be good, and so maybe what was hard was making it good. But once you leave the "is it good" out of the equation, and heaven knows networks and streamers have have left that out of the equation sometimes in the past. It seems like it ought to be really, really, really made to be made into a television show. And I've been surprised that, as you say, this is this is take three on the property. So who knows? I don't know. I, and, and similarly, you know, just it's it's an erratic thing. You you mentioned the various AMC and Rice Universe things and Vampire Diaries was really good and i understood why it was that it was the thing they were doing and the the witch thing with alexander Daddario was really bad and i didn't understand why it was the thing they were doing so we'll see mixed mixed track record i can at least be curious but this is happening more and more and more and more i remember our confusion talking to stephen moffat about uh time traveler's wife where it was a where it was a book that became a, t a movie that became a tv show that people were not necessarily sure was a tv show that then got canceled after one season so it was a limited series in the sense that it was limited to about a third of the book so we're seeing this an awful lot and hey it gives us a segment to talk about every week so woo up next it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. In Netflix's new thriller, The Diplomat, Carrie Russell plays a foreign service veteran appointed American ambassador to Great Britain in a moment of international crisis. Accompanied by her ambitious husband, played by Riva Sewell, Kate goes to London and discovers that her seemingly ceremonial job is very powerful indeed. The Diplomat was created by Deborah Kahn, an Emmy-nominated writer-producer whose credits include long stints on, and these are some good and familiar shows, Grey's Anatomy, The West Wing, Homeland, and FX's limited series, Fosse Burden. Welcome to the podcast, Deb. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. So some shows really don't have any kind of 
obvious hook to draw people in. And it feels to me like The Diplomat is a show that has several really big ones. You have an international incident where Great Britain is involved, but the United States is only a secondary player and that dynamic. You have an inside look at international diplomacy from a new ambassador's perspective. You have a a power struggle in a marriage of two ambassadors. For you, what was the order in which the elements of this story and this series came together? Well, for a long time, I have been interested in writing about who America is in the world uh, and what's the kind of gap between our intentions and our actions and the ramifications. Uh, so that's something that interested has interested me since the beginning of my career. I got a great chance to do that on Homeland, which was really exciting. But I also, when I was on Homeland... So many people loved that show and were really, really uh, huge fans of the story and the acting and the writing and the everything. And they would say to me, well, I watched a season, but I have to take a few months off because it's it's a lot. It's hard. You know, it's it's some it can be hard to to watch and to live in that space. And I felt like I wanted to create a way for people to engage with those stories, but make it just a little bit easier, like a little bit of eye candy with, let's set it in London. And some, I mean, you know, the relationship part and the sort of uh, little bits of theater of the absurd that are in there are just, I like that stuff. Um, And it's how I engage with, with a lot of things as sort of on a character level and kind of where to true dramatic stakes uh, kind of car crash into the absurd. When did Carrie come into the picture? And was there something that she needed to hear about the character and her arc before she signed on? Or, you know, was this a straight offer? Like, what kind of conversations did you guys have? Like, and was she your first choice? Um, She was the moonshot. I never thought we would get her. Um, We chased her down. She was cooking dinner for like three sets of grandparents um, right around Christmas and, uh, and didn't want to do TV. So it really seemed like, um, a match, uh, made in heaven. But I think she, uh, responded to the material and, uh, you know, liked the lightness that was woven into, uh, subject matter that can, can be that, uh, that heavy. And she was willing to, come on board. She's, once she falls in love with it, she's happy to kind of go for the ride and, and whatever comes. And, um, she loves the character. And so the storylines, she feels like whatever it is, she'll try it. She's incredibly game. You know, she's like, she has a great attitude about, she comes to work and she's like, okay, guys, let's do this. This is going to be a blast. And so, that's a kind of an infectious uh, attitude and energy that makes, you know, and it, it it influences everybody's day. Like there's 200 people on that set all the time. And it's really important to have somebody like her who's number one on the call sheet uh, 
come in and acknowledge the fact that we're pretty lucky to do this for a living and um, that ultimately it's all kind of a gas and some of it's going to work and some of it's not going to work. And let's keep our fingers crossed. She is, of course, a a veteran of a rather acclaimed show about international intrigue and a a complicated marriage. Um, As you're writing for her, do you take into account kind of the things that you've seen Carrie do before that you know she does well versus the desire to give her new things to do that you kind of would like to see her do? How do you how do you find that mix? Well, she can do anything is is uh, the gift of working with her. And there are parts of the character where having seen her work and having seen the breadth of it and uh, feeling like she's an amazing talent, I was completely confident that she could act all parts of the role. But there were a lot of things in the role that I hadn't seen her do before. Um, Particularly the the character kind of very much wears her insecurity on her sleeve and... uh, you know, the the sense of um, kind of raw humanity that, that we all carry around in the pit of our stomach, the character's kind of got, she's wearing it on the outside. And I felt like that was something that Carrie Russell would be able to act. But it turns out that's something that Carrie Russell, like very, she'll tell you herself, she is, you know, like there's a sort of a goofball, a little bit just sort of hanging on by her fingernails and nervous and a little bit squirrely and squirmy piece to Carrie, who, which is, seems crazy because particularly in the, the Americans and in so much of what she's done, you know, she's a dancer, she's a ballerina, she comes in with this sort of regal bearing and is such a powerhouse in that show so the thrill of discovering that, in fact, you know, like, she's as disorganized as the rest of us on the inside. And for her, I think it's been a real thrill to get to uh, play that on the outside, which has not always been the case in the other work she's done. So that's been a lot of fun. And that's something that the joy of TV is you write something and then you film some of it and then you write more and you can kind of see where your cast is leading you as well as where your ideas are leading you. And there's enough time in the process and you're doing it for long enough that you can really adjust to uh, what the, who the characters are in the hands of these actors. And with Carrie and Rufus, they got on like a house on fire. They enjoy working together. They have a great time. They have great chemistry. And that meant that both the depth and the pain and the vulnerability and the emotion and the hijinks of that relationship could be kind of pushed to 11 in a lot of places, which is just an incredible gift for a writer. Was there any point in the writing process or even during filming where, you know, either you or Carrie had to stop and say, wait, that's too much the Americans? We never ran into that's too much the Americans. Um, we have, so there's a, there is a, a spy piece to the show. Um, and we've tried pretty hard to make 
make it clear that somebody in a role that she's in is pretty conversant with the world of intelligence, but is not an intelligence professional. So uh, whenever she's wandering into that territory, she's, you know, she's got like conversational phrasebook spy vocabulary and literacy, but she's, she's not fluent in it. And, and we try to really specifically make sure that that stuff doesn't, you know, she, she's not secretly great with a gun, you know, there's, that's, that's not in there anywhere. So, uh, but look, if we by mistake wandered into something as high quality as the Americans, like I'd get over it. I'm okay with that. <laughs> now, when it comes to Kate's husband, Hal, the, the other ambassador Weiler, he isn't the villain in the story, but in terms of dramatic complication, and conflict, he often acts in the same way that an antagonist would in the structure of the story. Is What is the line that you have to walk with a character like that, to have him be constantly making a mess of absolutely everything in the way that you need for the story to move forward, but to still have an audience being sympathetic and being sympathetic with them as a couple? Aren't people like that, though? Aren't people like... Everybody that I desperately love is just unbelievably annoying as well. And my hope for every character and 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 deliberately on this show, anybody that feels like they might be a villain or an antagonist, I am desperately hoping we can kind of find a way to immediately sympathize with them on an instinctive gut level as soon as is humanly possible. So, like, there's a character who's an assassin and is introduced in the way that assassins often are in spy stories. And then fairly quickly, you learn that, like, he's a guy having a kind of administrative uh, staffing conflict with his colleague. And, like, there's, like, a petty bureaucratic turf war happening. And I'm always hoping with Hal, but with everybody, that we can kind of make those swings back and forth between you don't like him, you totally love him, you sympathize with him, you think he's a bad guy, you can't get enough of him, you can't get away from him fast enough. In terms of where the line is, well, you know, I'm not always sure that we're in the right place. I don't know. I don't know where the line is. Like, you, um, you'll tell me. <laughs> and, and what got it or not <laughs> and, and what is rufus who has played his share of both villains and kind of swoony regency romance type leads what does he allow you to get away with when it comes to a character like that he allows you to get away with everything is the short answer he is uh you know relentlessly delicious and he is um it's funny because he's played a lot of villains, but he's such, there is a sweetness in him that is very hard to escape. Uh, and there are storylines that, the you know, the question you were just asking was a question that I had in a lot of places. Like, can he do this and will we still love him afterwards? Can we, is the character going to survive this storyline or this scene or this plot? And uh he does it all with such a sort of a like a lovable puppy dog 
um, I'm just doing, you know, just trying to do my best for you uh, attitude under all of it that I think it's it's easy to redeem him in the audience's eyes even when he's do- done stuff that we don't like. He's just too delicious to hate. And you mentioned that the Americans wasn't something that came up in actual conversation as a thing you wanted to steer into or steer away from, but you have, you mentioned Homeland, but you also worked for for many years on the West Wing. You have this background in these big international scope shows that have diplomacy as part of their backdrop. As you're approaching different storylines, different twists, etc., do Homeland and West Wing come up explicitly as a thing you want to steer into or avoid? Or is it so baked into your DNA that it doesn't need to be mentioned explicitly? No, it does come up explicitly. I was was um, a huge uh, lover of the fact that West Wing had such a general, generous and optimistic look at the people who do the work of politics. And I also feel like I'm a person with a fairly clear-eyed view of, like, what America is, does, and is in the world. And, like... I get the horror show aspect. I certainly understand the part that Homeland was a lot more uh, connected to. And for me, the question was, can you get both? Can you get both in the same show? Can you get both in the same story and in the same character and in the same moment? And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't work. And, uh, but I think that the, the, I, I was happy that the show, the stories, and the actor, like we lucked out with actors that can speak in both of those vernaculars, um, you know, intense, dramatic stakes and more of the kind of the lightness and comedy and absurdity. It means that we have the ability to try to keep both of those things alive. Um I want to tell honest stories about who we are in the world. And I very much came at this subject matter uh, from the place of we really trashed our reputation in the world. We walked away from deals and partnerships and we left allies in the lurch and, um, uh, you know, really told the whole world to go uh, fuck itself for, for quite some time. And the question of how do you come back from that was really, really at the front of my mind as I was, uh, as I was approaching the material. But I also fundamentally feel like, you know, that one of the gifts of working on West Wing and Homeland is you get to talk to a lot of people who do a lot of really cool things and have important jobs in all kinds of areas that we've heard of and haven't heard of. And those con- I come away from those conversations near universally uh, feeling like these are really smart, really good people with good values, good intentions, who work hard and are trying to do their best for uh, the people that they represent. And the world is still an unrelenting shit show. So for me, the question was like, how is it that in the hands of the best people, 
we end up in this. How does that, like, how do you look at situations from enough different directions with enough complexity uh, and a, you know, a willingness to acknowledge the sheer massive number of stakeholders and competing interests in any given moment or conversation, like, if you look at all of that, the complexity of that, I think, gets us into situations that it's a lot simpler to say, well, it's, you know, we're in this mess because they're bad. Those people are bad and we're good and that's why. As opposed to, it's just unimaginably complicated to get two people to cross a street at the same time. Uh, and they can have really good intentions and the, you know, 18-wheeler that's barreling down the road toward them can be driven by a really good person and you're still going to get a big bloody crash. It sounds like you're positioning this very much as a as a ex almost explicitly post-Trump look at the world, but it's not explicitly post-Trump because people hint obliquely about the existence of someone like Donald Trump who was president, but not him himself. How did you decide when you wanted to name names versus when you didn't want to name names? I didn't ever want to name names because I would like to be, I want to have the liberty to be creating a world that is in conversation with the world that we're in and has the dynamics that we're dealing with in our world so that it feels relevant and, uh, but not be limited by it and not, uh, not be commenting directly on it. So as you pointed out, I think very astutely, there are some times when I swerve a little too close and it's a little, it, it, it just is a little too delicious to be able to say, well, yes, this is a complicated dynamic. And I know it's complicated because we're reading about it every morning on the front page of the Times. So sometimes that's just irresistible. And sometimes, the, like there was a while where we were not mentioning Ukraine because we didn't want to be talking directly about conflicts that were happening right, uh, unfolding right in front of us. But then it seemed just crazy. You know, foreign policy right now, the 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 entire uh, international world order flipped on its axis, uh, whatever, 18 months ago. And it just, you can't talk about foreign policy in the way that you would in the time that we were writing Homeland. Or, frankly, as I was when I started working on the piece, which was before the invasion of Ukraine. It was just a different world order. Our concerns were different. Our priorities were different. And all of the people who are engaged in this work had to really realign their worldview and, like, dust off the Cold War playbooks and find more people who spoke Russian. You know, we, 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 I say, as if I am part of the foreign policy and intelligence establishment, I really am not. But America spent a generation training people to uh, deal with major conflicts in the Middle East. And then all of a sudden, like, the State Department was not teaching enough people Russian, it turns out. So that uh, that shift in focus, it just seemed bonkers not to be talking about that and thinking about 
what is what does that mean for the world? What does that mean for the country? What does that mean for our future? And in the beginning of the process, I was doing you know what a, a story that that I was really engaged with and excited about of kind of how do you deal with a passive aggressive Russia, which had been the case for a couple of decades. We were constantly in conflict with a country that pretended we weren't in conflict with them. So that to me seemed inherently like fascinating and delightful. Well, they stopped being passive aggressive <laughs> halfway through the development process. And, uh, so we had to uh, do a lot of rewriting. But, you know, how great also to be coming in to a foreign policy landscape that hasn't been written about for 20 years by great writers like Alex Gonza. Like, this is, this is new territory. So, you know, it was sort of a buckle your seatbelt and hit the gas and hope for the best. You know, what aspects of the show do you think a hypothetical lifelong diplomat will find most gratifying in terms of the show's accuracy and what elements do you think they'd be most outraged by the license that you take in the show? Leslie, I am uniquely positioned to answer that question because uh, last night we actually did a screening in Washington uh, with a lot of diplomats and a lot of State Department people. Um, many of them are people that we had interviewed during the process of uh, researching the show and had been really helpful in, in helping us craft stories that were interesting and relevant. And um, I was absolutely terrified because they had been, we talked to a lot of people and they were very generous with their time and with their experiences. And there were a lot of things that we knew that we were doing that were going to be cringe moments for them and that I was just hoping that they were going to not throw a shoe at the TV. Uh, for example, I was really taken with the kind of work that people who are posted in the Middle East do. Um, these diplomats, ambassadors who are really on the front lines of resolving major, major conflicts or stopping them before they start. And we just, when they've done their job right, we have absolutely no idea what they do. We've never heard of it. Uh, and we never will. And I wanted to tell those stories, but I also wanted to do, I wanted to do it in a place that was a little bit more forgiving than where Homeland had done it. So I wanted to be able to have a little bit of the fantasy element of you get posted to Europe and you live in a castle and uh, you are in an environment that is easier to visit on a kind of a, you know, flight of fancy level for an audience. Um, so at least 65 uh, really smart, experienced diplomats told me that there's no such thing as a career foreign service officer that goes to London. It would just never, ever, ever happen. Now, one thing that started to make me feel a little bit better is a lot of people also told me that um, there would never, ever, ever be a female posted to the Court of St. James, ambassador to the Court of St. James. Um, and then as we were shooting the show, Jane Hartley was appointed 
<laughs> as ambassador to the court of St. James. So there are exceptions to every rule. And then there are also just buys that you have to make in order to get the boulder rolling down the hill of the story that you want to tell. And so judging from, uh, from the people I spoke to yesterday, they have a sense of humor about what they do and they understand that no one does not pivot on a dime from a posting uh, in Kabul to a posting in London, but that were we to actu- accurately depict the confirmation process, the show would take four years to uh, to get out of the gate. So as much as possible, wherever possible, I want it to be accurate. I want the minutia to be accurate and I want the kind of values of the place to be accurate. Um, and then hopefully when we're getting things wrong, it's things that we've chosen to get wrong, uh, things that we are aware of and have decided we're just going to make that buy because that's what we need to keep the story moving. Um, but there are definitely like massive blunders that I just don't know about yet because people have been too... Uh, polite to mention it. What kind of access did you guys actually have to uh, either in pre-production or in production to Winfield House and to the American Embassy? It's one of those things where most people wouldn't know for sure whether it was exactly like you guys depicted or completely different. But how close would you say those key locations are to the real thing? So um, the embassy was really great. We met with them uh, when we when we were first there in in pre production. We went in, and uh, fortunately, one of the people that had been working, kind of helping us with the details on the show as a consultant, was a woman named Liz Dibble, who had been DCM. She had been second in command at Embassy London, and uh, you know, storied Foreign Service officer for for many many years in many important posts. She had been working with us and we arrived and said we were from Netflix and said we were doing a television show about diplomacy. And they had a lot of ambivalence about what we might be. They That's gone badly for, the, for, the, for diplomats in the past. They're usually the butt of the joke or the the bumbling bozo in the corner of some story about uh somebody else who's saving the day. And uh, so they had a, a lot of skepticism about what this might be. But then we said, well, we're working with Liz Dibble. And one by every person we said that to went, went oh my God, she's so great. She taught me everything I know. I can't believe you know Liz. Send her my love. She gave me my first job. She taught me how to be a professional. She taught me how to be a diplomat. She taught me... So, uh, Liz Dibble apparently buys you a tremendous amount of credibility. And then also we spent a lot of time talking about what I wanted the show to be, what the intention was. And, you know, I'm not looking to tear anybody down. I think that uh, these people are out to serve their country and they're not in it for the money. And they are uh, really trying their best to represent the best of us and the best of the idea of democracy. And they're doing it in, in often really difficult circumstances. So I think once they got the sense that I had a sort of a fangirl crush 
on on them. They felt felt better about it and took us to Winfield many times, took us to the embassy many times. Uh, we actually shot at Winfield. We shot the real Winfield gate. They offered to have us shoot actually in Winfield House, um, which was really lovely of them. But when we explained that we would be shooting there for about four months and didn't think that uh, this the house's schedule would uh, be able to accommodate that, they agreed. So we did shoot for one day. We shot the front gate. And uh, then we had another house in just north of London, a place called Rudham Park, where we shot the rest of Winfield. And we're hoping to get the the flavor of the space right. And in, in, in many ways, we did. It was a little bit tricky because there's actually really incredible art at Rudham Park in the, in the real house. And a lot of it is of, you know, red coat officers or King George III, which would not necessarily um, appear in uh, an American uh, uh, <laughs> diplomatic outpost. But um, so some of that we had to cover over dark out in, in post uh, and slap up some images of founding father <laughs> instead. But um, we also had, there was also a, a, a day where we were able to shoot um, at the embassy itself, which was absolutely thrilling. It's a brand new building and it is a monster of a edifice. It's like a, it just a, this behemoth that uh, very clearly states, we are big, we are here. And uh, it's hard to get that on a set. So it was really nice to be able to put some pieces of the real thing out there. You know, the the first season ends on a pretty big cliffhanger, which we obviously won't spoil here, but where do things stand on on plans for a second season and how far along are you? Have you pitched it? Uh, I know obviously you are reuniting with the executive uh, that you've previously worked with on the West Wing at um, at Netflix here. But uh, how how do you, like do you have a multiple season plan here? Like what kind of conversations have you had about the show's uh, durability and longevity? Uh, they, uh, you know, very wisely. Uh, like to have shows come out before they decide what to do next. So ours has dropped, um, what time is it now? 15 hours ago. So it's possible that they have made a decision that they're prepared to uh, share, but they have not yet shared it with me. Um, if you know, you guys know a lot about what goes on in Hollywood. So if you hear before I do, please give me a call. Um, I certainly, I like long form stories. I like uh, being able to write about minutia and the little odd moments of uh, people's lives and their world. So I like long form storytelling. So I certainly hope it continues and I have a lot of ideas about where it would go. Uh, but we'll have, we'll, we'll see. We shall see what happens. What is the concreteness of those ideas? Because obviously, and this is the littlest of spoilers, but the first episode establishes that that Kate is potentially in line for a bigger job, and that's the kind of job that sets up season three or season four, and then there's a bigger job that's even one step beyond that that sets up season five or six. How many seasons do you actually see this as potentially being? 
I was raised in, uh, you know, broadcast network television. I worked in that medium for about 10 years and on shows that ran for hundreds of episodes. So I look for a world that I feel like can be populated endlessly with people and characters and uh, and scenarios. And like, this is not a world that's going to run out of steam anywhere. Uh, and the real, one of the real gifts of being on Homeland was they, I felt kind of broke new ground in, in, in the world of, uh, you know, the show is based on these two leads and then, you know, one of them isn't there and the other one still is. And it turns out this third person was the lead the whole time. And, uh, we're going to this country and then we're going to that country. I mean, that, that, they shot all over the world every season. They completely rebuilt the show on a new continent. So I don't know that we would ever run out of stories in London, but if we did, there are other countries. <laughs> I'm okay going to Paris for a couple of years. I'm, I'll, I'll be all right with that. Yeah, big crossover with uh, Emily in Paris, right? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, you were, you were, endless possibilities. I mean, Netflix is looking for those. Those, yeah. Oh, God, that's so good. Or the bureau, or the night agent. I, I mean, haven't seen US. it yet, but I'm told it's really um, delicious. It's like a delicious and extremely popular. Superfan. You guys could, uh, you you guys could do worse than to apparently have the level of success that. Not that we know the ratings, but whatever <laughs> the night agent appears to have had. So. I I try not to even dream that big. It's there. I'm delighted for them. They're they're having a great ride, and uh, I'm excited to watch their show. At the same time, you know, we we asked John Ryan when we had him on on uh, the podcast a couple of weeks ago about this big push that Netflix is making for these, you know, a, a, as Bella called them, these gourmet cheeseburgers, right? The big broad shows that can appeal to audiences no matter which coast they're on plus the middle of the country obviously and and beyond that 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 can travel internationally obviously your show is kind of right in that wheelhouse but how much of that was was in mind when you were pitching it obviously you're very passionate about about a lot of the the key themes that are explored here but was that on your mind of saying you know this is a big broad hit that this really could be a gourmet cheeseburger and have you ever been called that before um i you know, the first time I was ever called a a, a gourmet cheeseburger was, um, I think, about twenty four hours ago, and in in an article that Daniel wrote. Um, I have I'm not sure ever been so proud as I was then. I don't know if you are you familiar with the burger at Father's Office? Yes, of course. Okay, so I there are very few destination restaurants that I have in the world. But when I am in LA, I am like desperate to go and eat the gourmet cheeseburger for father's office. So I take it as I am a delightful compliment that I will uh, cling to uh, forever. And I am interested in creating story out of things that aren't obviously stories. So like the intricacies and nuances of the place where protocol and actual hardcore conflict resolution intersect is not always obviously television material. And when I was first working on the show and first researching the show, um, I had 
taken a trip to Washington and I came back and I was like just bubbling over with excitement about the fact that the world was changing and I was now in a position to tell stories about the nuances of America in a multipolar world instead of a unipolar world as it had been for X. And then there was this silence as I was telling this story to my Netflix executives. Um, and then uh, one of them said, but entertaining. <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, no, I promise. I promise. Very entertaining. Very entertaining. Uh, not just the shift in our foreign policy uh, priorities in the face of a multipolar world. So, <laughs> just imagining uh, the eyes glazing over as you get to multipolar, bipolar. Yeah. <laughs> But like the fact of the matter is, it's different. It's totally different. It's fucking fascinating. But, um, you know, I uh, I like being entertained. I, um, I, you know, I'm not I'm not here to 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 kind of teach a history lesson or or um, and I I don't think I would be good at that. And and. Um, I really, like, for me, the holy grail is how do you make something actually meaningful really entertaining? And I try to make things entertaining without kind of selling out the the real issues that um, that are behind the story and the kind of the intensity and seriousness of, of the world that I'm trying to depict is. And, you know, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. But... Uh, that's the sweet spot. I mean, you want it to be fun and rollicking and moving and talking about somebody, something that like we actually give a shit in the world about. Well, we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying outside of cuts of your own show? Of course. Uh, succession and succession and succession. <laughs> Sensing a theme here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a, a massive fangirl. Jesse Armstrong, he's like, that's the, I, I bow, I genuflect. He's a good writer. Well, well, Deb, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was a pleasure. The Diplomat is now streaming on Netflix. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with a critic's corner. Busy week again here, Dan. You've got, uh, well, you just heard our interview with the creator of The Diplomat, which is now streaming on Netflix. Mrs. Davis debuts with its first four episodes on Peacock. Beavis and Butthead, <coughs> they're back on Paramount+. Plus. <coughs> Amazon launches Dead Ringers. One of my favorites, Somebody Somewhere, returns for season two on HBO. And there's a lot of other stuff that I'm not even mentioning here, Dan. But what do you got? What should the kids check out this week? It is a lot of television. Um, and it's nice to be able to periodically say this. A lot of it is really, really interesting. And some of it is really, really good. And so that is that is encouraging. And it's also encouraging that that's the case, given that, as we've mentioned several dozen times, everyone's trying to pack things in ahead of Emmy season. So, yay. But it's nice that some of the stuff is actually uh, good. So, as you said, you uh, we... You just heard our interview with uh, Deborah Khan about The Diplomat, and we talked towards the end about the uh, Netflix comment uh, uh, about the gourmet cheeseburger, and 
as I said in my review, I, I think The Diplomat is actually probably a really good example of, of what that ought to be. It is completely and totally a show that is for that is for anybody. Well, maybe not anybody. It's a little R-rated, but not so R-rated that your basic teen or whatever might not be interested. Um, but it is it's a fast-moving international thriller, and it really is. It's it's eight episodes. Um the the premise is wildly fertile there is there is no reason at all why this show couldn't go for a long time and it is just a wonderful wonderful cast that kind of drives it and so obviously the starting point is is Carrie Russell and and she's just great here and uh, there will always be the need slash desire to compare anything Carrie Russell does in the international thriller drama space to the Americans and it's it's not that but on the other hand I think that probably The Americans is another really good example. It's not a Netflix show, clearly, but it's another good example of a show that is a gourmet cheeseburger. The The Americans is a is a spy thriller. That is that is what it is at, at its heart. It is it is totally and completely a thriller. It just happens to be one of the best thrillers of its type ever made in the medium. And I don't know that The Diplomat is that. It's not really that good, but. It's still good. It's it's very entertaining. Carrie Russell is really good. And the thing that the show does best of all for me is it's a show about smart people trying to do a difficult job that honors the intelligence of the characters and the difficulty of the job. And that is not an easy thing to do. And I think it really succeeds at that. I mentioned Carrie Russell, Rufus Sewell as as her husband's a lot of fun. Their relationship, the two characters, uh, is a is a fairly unique relationship on TV. It's it's not a it's not a toxic marriage, but it's certainly a marriage that has a lot of problems with it and some of them have international ramifications. Uh but it's it's still just an interesting relationship with lots of dynamics you haven't seen before. And then the supporting cast is is really excellent. Uh Otto Essendo is an actor who's been popping up in a lot of things in the past couple of years. He has a really good part as the kingmaker whose job it is to show Carrie Russell's character around London and show her the ropes of the job. Uh, you have Ali um Ali On, who's really, really good as the CIA station chief in London. Lots of people in in juicy little supporting roles. Rory Kinnear is a total hoot as the Prime Minister of the UK, who initially seems like a bumbling fool but probably isn't. Uh, ditto with Miguel Sandoval as the Secretary of State. Mike McKean plays uh, the President of the United States, who has some resemblance to Joe Biden, but other resemblances not. Uh, just, just a really good cast, solid premise, Terrific star vehicle for Carrie Russell. Um, yeah, if the, if this is what gourmet cheeseburger TV actually is to Netflix, I, I say bring it on. I am I am happy to to be there for it. Uh, I I think it's I think it's a better show than Night Agent, but I think it should have some of the same bingeability. I think people could settle in and just happily watch eight episodes of this in a hurry. And really and truly, it needs to be renewed fairly soon because all cliffhangery and stuff. Um, a show that is a lot more difficult to to actually binge. Um, I, in fact, doubt that most people will have the stomach for it, but that still has a lot of things going for it and has a lot of things going for it, starting with its uh, leading lady, is Amazon's Dead Ringers, which is adapted by, uh, by Alice Birch from the movie by David Cronenberg. Also, there is a 
you know, book that's a source material, but I don't know that anyone really <laughs> takes the book too seriously. It's mostly adapted from the film by David Cronenberg. And it takes the same basic premise. There are identical twin siblings who are, who are gynecologists and Things get twisty because the siblings are very, very different, and when one of them falls in love, it threatens both their personal and their professional relationship, etc. But ultimately, it doesn't have much to do with the David Cronenberg film in terms of its, in terms of its look and style, or in terms of its fixations. Because obviously, with David Cronenberg, there is going to be there's the ingrained gynophobia that is always a part of it, but there's also the fascination with mutation and change through time. And so the movie obviously has all of that stuff with the fact that one of the characters, his thing is he's making, he's making new gynecological instruments for the modern era's mutant woman. And the instruments are, are just these incredibly Cronenbergian things. And, and just the entire production of the design is in for, of the movie is informed by that. This uses the premise and then goes its own direction. Now, there's an entirely different perspective that comes from having the twins here, still named Elliot and Beverly, uh, have them be a woman. And so played by Rachel Weiss, who is absolutely terrific and has what I would say is without any hesitation is the best part she's had in her career. And, you know, she's obviously an Oscar winner and then has been in some great movies. So that is saying a lot. And she's just having a great time here playing the one withdrawn twin and then the more outgoing twin with the addiction to snorting Adderall and other various things. Um, it's a lot of Fun watching her do that. And Alice Birch, the creator, um, she's got things on her mind. And she's got things on her mind that are very different from what was on David Cronenberg's mind. And so there's a whole different exploration of what fertility and reproductive freedom mean to women in the 21st century versus to a man in the in the <laughs> in the 1980s. It's a very different perspective. It is very graphic in its depiction of of childbirth and uh, the entire process. And it is, there's, there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of very graphic miscarriages, there's a lot of stuff that is very, very difficult to watch. And I can understand completely why some people would be freaked out by that, and, and in a way that goes far beyond what's disturbing about the movie, which is very disturbing, just in a different way. Um but it's it's completely really worth watching for for Rachel Weisz for a couple of the supporting performances though a lot of them are very are very thin but uh, Jennifer Ely has a a great part as a as an investor with ties to a family that's very very Sackler esque and so again there's lots of meditation on on what the pharmaceutical industry has to do with the reproduction reproductive health industry and it's it's just a very, very smart and thorough series until it goes a little off the rails in the finale. I thought the finale kind of buried a lot of the bigger thematic questions under needless twists and turns, under various off-putting things intended to basically freak the crap out of viewers. And I understand why that would be a thing that the direction they might have gone, it just wouldn't have been the direction that I would have probably preferred that they go. Uh, also, very much this is not a, a thing that needs to be a, an ongoing series. And definitely that's not how Amazon is approaching it. It's approached as a limited series. But 
how many times have we seen streamers and networks be like, ooh, this did well. Let's do season two. I do not need a season two of Dead Ringers, but I think there is a lot of value in watching Rachel Weisz have this role and watching her be able to play it over six hours. Uh, you can you can see why there would be an advantage in doing it at this length rather than as a two-hour movie, which is not always the case with these adaptations. So, uh, you know, including, including the other thing that I'm watching for a show that I'll review on next week's podcast. Uh, but not gonna not gonna spoil that particular twist but you can figure it out it's pretty straightforward uh so yeah i I think i think it's worth watching but also (laughs) in my review i joked that it's depiction of uh the gory process of childbirth and the medical processes around it uh make the amc plus uh comedy uh this is gonna hurt look like bluey and i i think that's true i think that if you are the kind of person who is squeamish about medical procedures particularly medical procedures as relate to women's health issues uh yeah you you just really want to (laughs) be you probably want to be not watching this though i can understand why you might still enjoy that that was you saying no (laughs) no strongly recommend not watching and i didn't force you to watch so all is well um there have been a lot of uh, very, very positive reviews for uh, Mrs. Davis. Various friends of the five have been quite positive in their reviews. Mrs. Davis is, of course, Peacock's... God, attempting to describe this one is just a, a, a fool's errand. Uh, it's very Damon lindelof It's Damon lindelof though he created it with Tara Hernandez, so make sure to give everybody their kind of... Of Big Bang Theory, yes. To give them their credit. Uh, But yes, so Friends of the Five, like Alan Sepinwall, Angie Han, have been very, very positive about it. Uh, And so Peacock should definitely be happy that Angie wrote THR's review, because my review would have been probably significantly more negative. I've watched five episodes, and I will will watch the rest of it. I feel, and this is not in any way a criticism, because this is a thing that I do all the time, that this is getting a significant benefit of the doubt on the basis of Damon Lindelof's name. And I think, again, that is entirely reasonable. I do it all the time. I do it when a Noah Hawley show is bumpy in its initial going. I've done it in the past, uh, perhaps retrospectively with some regrets on, you know, Aaron Sorkin shows or or Joss Whedon shows where you go, well, I like watching this person's mind at work and so whatever. And you and you don't necessarily look at what the show actually is. Like I think if you did a blind taste test and put Mrs. Davis up against other conspicuously quirky shows of recent vintages, I, I don't think it's better, for example, than the resort, which was not a show that a lot of people talked about, though we did a podcast interview on it. Um, I think it's better than I don't think I don't think it's necessarily better than Made for Love, another show that we did a podcast interview on that maybe wasn't all that rapturously revealed. Uh, it is very conspicuously quirky. That is really and truly without getting into the plot, because I couldn't describe the plot in a million years. It involves a nun and the Holy Grail, and a bunch of other stuff. It, it, like almost anything, and and meditations on faith and technology and religion and algorithms and stuff. It is 
very conspicuously quirky. I found its conspicuous quirkiness to be truly exhausting and to be truly exhausting almost immediately. Um, which is not to say that I didn't find some of its quirkiness to be extremely entertaining as well. Things can exhaust me and still entertain me. This is absolutely possible. Uh, this absolutely, totally exhausted the hell out of me. Again, watch five episodes. I will 100% watch the rest. What I kept comparing it to, and for some people this will be an asset, and for other people this will be an, oh dear lord, I'm staying away from it, is to the Steven Spielberg movie 1941, where the degree of chaos is so manifest and you can see at every turn where the people involved are having a lot of fun and putting in a lot of effort, but what it's yielding is chaos. And you're either rolling with the chaos and accepting it, or you're not going to. And I honestly accepted the chaos, but just the the episodes are long. They're, they're 50 plus minutes per, and some of the episodes I've seen drag because... It's just a lot of one thing or another. Um, but there's a lot of good acting in it. Betty Gilpin is the star and and she's she's so good and she's and she's such a treasure and she's and she's having fun playing this this nun who has a tendency to move in slow motion with her whipple flying in the air and and it's like, okay, you absolutely Betty Gilpin, I will watch you do things. And, and it's a character who makes wonderful use of Betty Gilpin's kind of withering sarcasm, which I think is, is such a wonderful asset on her part. And so I, I can, I can watch her do things. And if you, if you keep watching lots and lots of very recognizable people pop up in, in small roles and, and you can see at every turn how, Everybody involved must have gotten such a kick out of the strange things that they were getting to do on a weekly basis, etc. And look, I can't say with any certainty that it won't all come together for me by the end of the first season. I know some of our critic friends have talked about how they felt when it got to the end that they that they felt really satisfied with the destination. And I know that if I had only watched two or three episodes, my reaction probably would have been different from my reaction at the end of episode five, because the show is very, very self-conscious and meta about all of its things that are that are obvious and that are tropes and that are, are cliches. And some of them, it takes great pl pleasure in upending at different points. It's like, okay, I see what you're doing at every point. I, I see where the smartness is. I see where the cleverness is. Uh, and it's all just kind of spiraling wildly off into space. And, and you hope that at some point it will come back. And look, Damon Lindelof has gotten in his career both, the benefit of the doubt and whatever the opposite of the benefit of the doubt is. The number of people who didn't watch The Leftovers because they felt outraged by the way Lost ended is a very real number. And the people who didn't watch or who or who watched later, you know, they 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 either missed out initially on a spectacular show or they caught up on it. Some people still refuse to watch. I can say, check it out. It whatever, but some people were negatively predisposed then. And so then with Watchmen, which was an incredibly ambitious show that could have gone wrong in so many different ways and remarkably did not, David Lindelof got the benefit of the doubt and earned more benefit of the doubt. So he has earned 
a benefit of the doubt. I just feel like if this were anybody else who had made the show, I wouldn't have been even as positive as I am. And I think I'm very, very mixed. Uh, Look, some people are going to love this show. Its weirdness is going to be completely on some people's wavelength. Other people are going to probably sense within five minutes that they don't want any piece of this show. And I don't think either one of them necessarily is is wrong. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a weird show. I could not, I could not describe what it is. Um, and I'm very glad that Angie got to try to handle the, the plot summary of it. Uh, but you can... You can find things to like in this. You can also very easily find things to be irritated by. It is sometimes wildly outkicking its coverage in terms of in terms of what it thinks its philosophy is. So far, I have not felt like any of its philosophical points were were anywhere near interesting. Some of its technical observations are very savvy, but I think they're savvy in a way that's so obvious that it's not. I, I'm not giving it much credit for it. So there's a lot. Of, so again, the stuff about algorithms and about verification processes and and stuff like that. As we're in a moment at which, at which in the past, you know, since we started recording this podcast, Leslie and I both lost our blue check marks on Twitter, and we've been we've been doing our best to hold our emotions together. But let me assure you, we are both crying inside. Are you crying inside, Leslie? <laughs> Oop, Leslie's no. now crying on the outside. Uh, so yeah, there there are things that are accurate here, and and I don't question that. I just have I've gotten to a lot of points in the five episodes where I've thought, okay, that's really clever or that's really funny. I have yet to get to a single thing where I've thought, okay, that's really smart or that's really profound. So there's that. Um, and then uh, the last of the things that that I've reviewed or can talk about at length, uh, Alan Hughes's Dear Mama. Uh, which is an FX five-part documentary series, takes a really good and in-depth look at Tupac Shakur and his mother, Afeni. And it does a good job of trying to reconcile the conflicts in the Tupac persona. And it, it is a documentary that to me is constantly thinking and constantly trying to make sense of things rather than, coming to a conclusive answer, you know, was, was Tupac playing a role or was this really who he was? Uh, was he truly a man who loved and respected women or was he the man he was portrayed as in his New York sexual assault trial? All of the things that are contradictory about Tupac that really can't be reconciled, it tries to engage with, and it tries to engage with it through the prism of his mother, who was a, a Black Panthers leader, uh, it tries to connect mother and son in a way that I think is really interesting. Probably five hours feels like a lot. And if you don't care about Tupac and if you don't care about this as, you know, 90s hip hop as a as a milieu, then you definitely don't want to watch it. But I think it is, I think it does what it does better than most of the and I've seen a lot of documentaries and movies about Tupac. I think it does a better job than most of them. Um, I have not had a chance to get to the new episodes of Somebody Somewhere. I'm hoping to get to one or two this afternoon so I can say a few words in my newsletter. Leslie, have you had a chance to check out your screeners on that one? I know you are not a, a critic, but I know you are also a huge fan of Somebody Somewhere. 
I'm also a huge fan of Dodger games, and that's really what I've been watching this week. I'm sorry, but it is on my to-do list. As as it is for mine. We just watched Cocaine Bear the other night, so that's how far behind I am. Starring the diplomat star Carrie Russell. So so I'm trying to I'm trying to bring everything full circle. Anyway, so yes, I have not gotten to my somebody somewhere screeners, but I really liked the first season and and maybe when I eat lunch this afternoon, I'll watch an episode or two so I can talk about it in my Friday newsletter, uh, which Leslie will plug in a couple seconds. But first, as the quick reshuffling of things. But uh, before you do ooh. that, you can go back and listen to our great interview with Bridget Everett from episode 153. That was from January 22nd, 2022. Yes, I, I do like it when periodically we branch. I, you know, obviously, we love talking to our showrunners because showrunners are awesome. But I also like the periodic times that we branch out and talk to interesting personalities from different parts of the process. And and she was really very, very good. Uh, so, yeah. So as the, the quick recap goes... Um, the Diplomat is all up on Netflix now, eight episodes, and I think this is a good illustration of the gourmet cheeseburger Netflix aspiration, and I, I think a lot of people will enjoy it. It's a really good vehicle for Carrie Russell. Lots of shows this weekend, this week, that are uh, really good vehicles for their leading ladies, so that's that's good. It's nice to see, because Dead Ringers on Amazon, which premieres Friday, also very, very good example of that. Rachel Weisz is fantastic. It will not replace the David Cronenberg movie in your mind, but guess what? The David Cronenberg movie is available to stream on, I believe, for some reason, Peacock. Uh, and, you know, so there it is. Even though the show is on Amazon, that's just how these things go in the peculiar streaming world. Uh, but yeah, definitely worth watching for Rachel Weisz, and it has a lot on its mind. Uh, Mrs. Davis is on Peacock, great vehicle for Betty Gilpin. Um, I'm still not convinced that its chaos is worth the time, but there is a lot of entertainment in its chaos, and, uh, you know, stick with it to at least see if you ha if it's on your wavelength. It might be, but you also might think after the first five minutes that it's not, so just know that it's, it's one of those things where whatever you think the show is, it <laughs> it's a different show five minutes later, so so stick with it if you care. Um, and then, yeah, Dear Mama, if you are a, a hip-hop fan or a Tupac Shakur fan, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. Lots of great footage, smart interview subjects, and just a good approach to the subject matter from director Alan Hughes. So lots of TV this week and lots of good and interesting TV. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters, now see this newsletter, and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporters TV Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. We do not claim to be experts in therapy, so... Don't criticize us for that. But otherwise, you know, be honest. We appreciate honesty. We also appreciate honesty if you just want to come let us know on Twitter what is or isn't working. It's part of what we're there for. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. She's at Snoodit, S-N-O-O-D-I-T. So come see us there. And if you've got a question for our mailbag segment, which I... My notes say that we're probably going to do one next week. You can go ahead and drop us an email at TV's top five. That's the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.